Um, would you like to just turn to Ephesians chapter 1, which is, we're doing a series on Ephesians at the moment, and we're looking at God's big story, uh, God's big plan rather, in chapter 1. So if we just read a few verses from there, first of all, so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, but I might tip into 6 actually, so here we go. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So my focus today is actually on verse 5, that verse that says he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, following on from uh, Simon's masterful handling of the previous verse on holy and blameless. If you haven't listened to that, it's a talk worthy of a Bible school. Honestly, it was superb. And it's all about God's big plan of adoption into his family this week. Uh, So that's what I want to talk about, adoption. Uh, And I've just got to say, my experience of adoption is quite limited. I... uh, I know what it is to be a son, uh, but my mum and dad are actually my biological parents, so the impact of adoption is theoretical to me, naturally speaking. And I have never personally adopted a child. I tried it with a puppy once. It didn't work very well, so no help there either. But I do know what it is to be adopted by my heavenly father, and I'm learning what it means to be a son bought of his blood, and all that this means. So hopefully I've got some useful things to say today. Um, Actually, the story I want to start with is that of my good friend, Phil Wolfew, who was telling me about his own experience of adoption, because although he wasn't adopted, his little brother was. And uh, so he's given me permission to share his story with you uh, this morning. Uh, for, For many years, Phil was an only child. His parents were unable to have any other children. And then when he was around about 14 years old, his mum and dad came to him and said, let's adopt a child. They'd just been praying about it, just feeling like that was something that they wanted to do. And so Phil, as a 14-year-old, had this amazing privilege to be part of this great decision. And for months, he says, that they would just pray and say, God, show us which of these children, these hundreds of children that are up for adoption, should we consider? And he says that they poured over pictures of children and turned pages in directories and reviewed the many heartbreaking stories that were there. I mean, how do you choose? And finally, they all agreed on one little boy and they made all the necessary arrangements to adopt him. And Phil still says, says he still remembers the day when they packed into the car as a family, having got this child's room ready and prepared a place for him, and then went to collect him and bring him home and welcome him into their family. Can you imagine? 
And I was just so struck by this picture of a father, a mother, and the son sitting down together to choose a child for adoption. That child, just like us, with our Heavenly Father, had done nothing to merit their choice. And in the years to come, that child would cause them so much heartache, actually, and pain. This child was so often unable to understand the love that Phil's family had for him. But the adoption was real. And from the moment that those papers were signed and that little boy was welcomed into the home, he became part of their family. And for the rest of his life, things would never be the same again because he was a Wilfew now. Now, I haven't been through that experience, but I can imagine that it must have been incredible for all concerned. Adoption. That's adoption. It's an immense privilege It's a huge cost and a sacrifice chosen before our foreknowledge. That's what Paul says, before the creation of the world, chosen for eternity. And from the moment of our adoption, Paul tells us that we receive the full rights of sonship. Because the Greek word for adoption is a legal term and it refers to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. Now, don't be put off by the male heir bit. The father's adoption means that we have the same rights, both men and women, in the same way as it was for a Roman natural-born male heir who's come of age. And so adoption is God's way of confirming our standing, our status, our rank, our position, our privilege as God's offspring. So he doesn't call us children. You know, notice that he doesn't say children in this context because children had no rights under Roman law. It didn't matter who they were. Until they came of age, they had no say in anything, no authority in the father's house. Children, as Paul tells us in Galatians 4, had a standing that was no different to that of slaves. God doesn't call us children. He hasn't chosen us to be slaves, but sons. And he raised our status as sons to that of legal heirs. (laughs) You see, God's big plan was never about infants in his kingdom, but powerful sons who exercise authority in his name. So here's the first thing. Do you know (laughs) the status that you've been given in his house? Are you aware of that privilege? From the least to the greatest, the authority that you've been given the welcome that you have received in this royal family of God. We're royalty. If you are a believer today, welcomed into his family, then that means you're part of his royal family, adopted to reign with him in a place of incredible significance. And this is completely mind-blowing. It's staggering, and we could stop there and just talk about that for the rest of the time. But also, and I dare to say, completely unnecessary. I mean, why? Why did God go to that extent? Why was adoption even necessary? Why is it such a key part of his great plan? I mean, wasn't it enough just to deal with our sin? 
to save us and to cleanse us and to heal us, why adopt us? Uh, I mean, it would have been enough just for us to be his grateful servants, wouldn't it? We, we didn't, uh, or, or even slaves to do his bidding. Wouldn't that have been enough? I mean, isn't it enough just to put a beggar back on his feet? <laughs> put food in his belly and a roof over his head? Surely we deserved even less than that. We'd be grateful for that, actually. To be saved from sin, to have a clear conscience, to have a guaranteed place in heaven. So why was it necessary for God to bring us into his house and make us a part of his royal family? Well, because this is the next part of God's big plan, and we need to understand it. That in his adoption of us is the revelation of his fatherhood. So do you know God as Father? It's the revelation of God as Father. See, God wants us in his family to father us. That was the original plan. He was never just the creator, you know, the one who made us on a hasty and fumbled one-night stand, but was never there to father us. He was never just the provider to look after our needs like animals in a cage, or or just the saviour to get us a free pass into eternity. No, he designed us for intimacy. (laughs) He designed us for familial relations where he's not only God of the universe, but also our Father in heaven. And Jesus, so when Jesus comes, he tells us how we should address him. He says, when you pray... Say, our Father, because Jesus came to reveal the fatherhood of God as the firstborn son of heaven. See, God always wanted to be known as Father. But for generations, it seems, especially throughout the New Testament, God was rarely known as Father. In fact, he only appears 17 times as Father in the whole of the Old Testament compared to 261 times in the New Testament. And even when he does appear as father in the Old Testament, the title is used in more of a biological than a relational sense. So the father and creator of all things, or the one who brought forth life, not this intimate word that speaks more about a family relationship with God. So Jesus tells us to call him Abba, Father. This is a term of great intimacy, but also respect. And the Spirit witnesses to this truth, Paul tells us. He cries out within us, Abba, Father. So he says in Romans 8, he says, the Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, by the Holy Spirit within us, we cry, Abba, Father. And the unique revelation of adoption is in God's fatherhood, which is presumably by why Paul starts his outpouring of praise in verse 3, with these words, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it defines our relationship with him. I mean, did you know that God is highly relational? Did you know that about him? He's highly relational. He wants us to know a relationship, not based on fear like slaves, 
but on his vast and measured unconditional love as sons. You think you love your children. You don't know anything compared to the, the love that God has for you, the extent of his love, the breadth of it. John tells us in the New Testament that the Father was motivated by love in sending Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Why his son? Well, because the son is the only one that can really reflect the Father because Jesus came to show us what the Father was like, what he was really like. In fact, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the exact representation of the Father according to Hebrews 1.3. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Jesus showed us, came to show us what the Father is like, what he's really, really, really like. This is what he's like. Jesus told his disciples, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. There's no difference. If you see me, you see the Father. If you want to see what the Father is like, Jesus says, look at me. If you want to know what the Father does, watch me. If you want to hear what the Father says, listen to me. There's no difference. Jesus said, I and my Father are one, John 10.30. I am in the Father and he is in me, John 14.10. Everything that Jesus did and all that he was, was an exact representation of God, the Father. He was showing us what the Father was really like and how we were designed to relate to him. He showed us that God is not distant and uncaring. He's not hard and unfeeling. He's not remote from our suffering. He's not even too busy for us. You know, sometimes people say, I don't want to bother him with this. He's wanting you to bother him. He's not too busy for you. Actually, the Father is just like we see in Jesus, loving, patient, merciful, and kind. The Father is full of grace. He's the one who heals us. He's the one who forgives us. He's the one who never gives up on us. And actually, if you look at Jesus, if you look at his example, you'll see that it appears the Father prefers the company of sinners to even some of the religious people. How about that? Isn't that good news? And I don't know what your view of God has been like, but is it like this? Is it like this? Is it like Jesus? Because so often this is what has kept us from a relationship of intimacy with God. We see him as this angry figure, this this bad, angry God in the background. No, look at Jesus. I and my Father are one. But here in this passage... You ready for a diversion here? We hit a problem. A confusion, actually, about what God is really like. An apparent contradiction in, in all that Paul is saying. In fact, we may even have a big problem in God's big plan. I mean, you may have noticed that so far I have neatly skipped over one important word in the sentence, which is this predestined. In verse 5 it says, he predestined us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Predestined, this jarring word that comes between God's choosing in verse 4 and our adoption in verse 5. It's a word 
that reveals that actually God might be a bit choosy. We might even say unfairly prejudiced about some people. What Paul shows us is that although all people were potentially chosen, not all people are adopted into his family. In love, he predestined us. He restricted or he limited us for adoption. But what about everybody else? I mean, if you look around, you'll see that there are many people who aren't here today. I don't just mean in this building, but in relationship with God. Certainly there are many people out shopping today in Solihull who are not here. Others lying in bed, having a rest, or in front of the TV, or doing jobs around the house. They have no knowledge of God, no revelation of his love, no experience of his fatherhood, and neither do they appear to want it or even need it. What about them? Are they chosen? Potentially, yes. Are they selected for adoption? Possibly, yes. But also, troublingly, perhaps not. And this is called the doctrine of election, which is very hard. Actually, it's impossible to understand. And I'm going to do my best to explain it to you. The the doctrine of adoption, uh, election, sorry. I mean, it's true that everybody... Every single theologian I've read doesn't understand this. Um, The idea that some people are predetermined for salvation and others for damnation is repugnant to us and impossible to reconcile with a loving Heavenly Father. And I don't want to shirk this, so we're going to look at it. You know, I don't have all the answers, but I can set out the problems for you. But before I do so, I want to remind you of the context of this passage that I pointed out to you last time. It's built against the backdrop of love. In love, he chose us before the foundations of the world, that we have a loving heavenly father. God was and is always motivated by love, even if, well, he's God, you know, and he's hard to understand sometimes. So here's the problem. It's got several several parts to it. Here's the first one. All are chosen, but not all are adopted. See, God chose everybody for creation in love, but not everybody is adopted. Why? Well, because adoption can only be given to those to whom he gives the right to be called the sons of God. That's in John 1, verse 12. The right to be called the sons of God. So who are they? Who are those people? Well, John goes on to tell us that this right is only given to those who receive him and those who believe in his name. In other words, although everyone is potentially chosen, not everyone will be adopted because for this to happen, a response is required. A free will decision needs to be made by each one of us to accept God's offer of salvation. You have to make that choice. But that raises another issue. And that is apparently that some are predestined for adoption, but some are not. You know, if some are predestined for adoption, as Paul says, then surely God must already know, predestined is the clue, 
he must already know who are the ones that are going to respond to his love and put their trust in him. I mean, that's a problem in itself, but then it raises the question of, well, did I choose then? If he already knew I was going to choose, did I ever really choose him then? Or didn't I have a choice? So, there you go. Did I choose God? Or didn't I really have a choice? Well, yes, you chose him. You chose him and freely, but only because in eternity he'd already chosen you. Doesn't help. It it goes around in circles in this eternal question, which we can ask, and that's what I'm doing today, but we can't quite grasp the answer. Okay, so here's one more then. Can we then know who's chosen or not? No. Because it is still the case, according to 1 John, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anybody. And the Father, Paul tells us, wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. And then Peter gets in on the act where he tells us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.9. Lord, this doesn't help. And of course, then Jesus commands us to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, not just those that he may or may not have chosen. So we must message or not. Anybody? <laughs> and actually, I wonder if we might have more success if we go knowing that God has already predestined many more people than we can ever realize to receive him and know him as father. How about changing the mindset? I wonder if it's him. I wonder if it's him. I wonder if it's her. So it's a complete mystery. A complete mystery. The idea of God choosing us and not choosing others is baffling, awe-inspiring, and distressing all at the same time. But you should know this. It's not an invention of men. It's not just a theological theory or a device, but the evidence of God's choosing runs throughout the whole of Scripture. Help, John Stott, help us with this. Here we go. The great theologian John Stott says this. According to the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations in the world to be his special people. According to the New Testament... He's choosing an international community to be his saints, his holy or special people in the church. So we must not reject the notion of election as if it were a weird fantasy of men, but rather humbly accept it, even though we don't fully understand it, as a truth which God himself has revealed. Even John Stott doesn't get it. I'm so encouraged. So perhaps instead of me calling this a big problem with God's big plan, we should call it the big mystery in God's big plan. So how should we respond to this? Well, 
If you've not yet made a decision to choose God as your father, then you must know that if you're hearing this today, you are being given the opportunity to do so. The fact that you're hearing the message of a loving Heavenly Father who has chosen you gives you that opportunity and one day you'll have to give account to him for that opportunity and how you've responded. And I want to urge you not to leave here today without doing something about it. Ask him to adopt you into his family. Find out what that means. Ask somebody today, somebody who's brought you, or come and talk to me at the end. If you have already made this decision and responded to God's invitation to be a part of his family, then this is evidence enough of his choosing. (laughs) We should be humbled by this and eternally grateful. It should cause praise to rise from our hearts. We should fall down on our face and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. I worship you. You're worthy of it all. The apparent unfairness of his selection shouldn't stumble us, but cause us to pray and intercede for those who are not here today and should be. (laughs) Those who are not walking with God, those members of our families, the prodigals that we're going to be praying about in the prayer room in a few weeks' time, those that have fallen by the wayside, the people who live next door to you, sit next next, next to the train or work with you, The idea of God's potential choosing of everybody and this predestination of some for adoption should cause us to go out and look for them, to find his lost sheep and bring them home into his flock. You know, guys, we're not going to be able to understand all of the mysteries of God. How would he be God otherwise? How big do you want your God to be? If he's big enough for me to understand, he's not big enough, he's not God. That would make me God. So this is another time when we have to face the facts and decide to live with unfathomable mystery and not understand everything. Is that okay with you? (laughs) We must use the indignation and the apparent unfairness of those who appear to be destined for hell to drive us to cry out to God for salvation, to speak up and speak out on their behalf. But listen, you need to know something. There is only one who opposes the salvation of men, and it's not our Heavenly Father. It's not. Paul is very clear on this. And who is responsible for the theft of men and women's souls? In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he writes this. He says, it's the God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age is the robber of men and women's souls. That's why we have to pray. That's why we have to intercede. And perhaps it should change our praying. Say, Lord, the eyes that have been blinded, will you please cause them to see? through the light that I carry, those red arrows that go out, as we were hearing earlier on in the prophetic. Let me conclude. I thought I'd keep it short and punchy today. There's a lot to take on. I've really put you through your paces. I've made you think through some pretty uncomfortable ideas about salvation. But you need to see the bigger picture of God's great plan for the redemption of everything. 
God is not just our creator, but an affectionate, loving father. Number one, do you know him like that? Do you know that he loves you utterly? And he loved you even before you were created. He chose you even before you existed and he loved you. That's the kind of father he is. And he wants you to know the privilege of your adoption. We are invited into his royal line and given the status of blood-bought sons in his house. He changes our DNA and we become royalty. But we need to learn to live out of that place of significance and exercise the authority that he's given us to change the world by bringing his rule and reign wherever we go. Amen? We are chosen and adopted, but let's not stop there. We need to go out and find others. (laughs) Those whom God has set his heart on before the creation of the world. They are literally everywhere. They're in some of your families. They're definitely in your community. Wherever God has put you, that's why you're there. To carry out his work, to continue his work of seeking and saving those who are lost. Luke 19.10. So don't get in the, stuck in the mystery of who God chooses and am I chosen or am I not and all this kind of thing. I've had those conversations with people. The fact you're here today means you are. And you're adopted into his family. And I'm convinced that we're going to have some surprises throughout our lifetimes. And certainly in eternity. Of some of the people that God has adopted. What, really? Him? Huh? Really? Paul says, I am the worst of sinners, made as an example to everybody. If I can get saved, anybody can. That's basically what he said. Don't get stuck in the mystery. Get a bigger view of God's great plan. Isaiah writes, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. That's how big he is. That's how high he thinks. And how highly he thinks of you. God's big plan requires a bigger imagination. A bigger perspective. I'm going to just finish with this. And it's in Ephesians. We'll come to it at some point in years to come, probably at the rate we're going. But this is how Paul sort of closes off this section. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine (laughs) according to his power. Hold on. (laughs) That's a lot. That is at work in us. Oh, he's done a lot in me. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He is able and willing to do more. You haven't asked big enough. You haven't even imagined what you can ask. So how can you expect him to show you his great and immeasurable power? One of the benefits of looking at a doctrine that we can't understand is that we have to fall down and say, God, I don't get it, but you're amazing. Amen?